when we started Manny Life, peanut butter was very much like a commodity. It was smooth and crunchy, occasionally with no palm oil, and that was kind of it. And no one really spoke about provenance, no one really spoke about roast, no one really spoke about uh, process, and it didn't really appear to be very considered. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Back to the Source. Today, we'll be speaking about peanuts from Argentina. To shed some light on the world of peanuts, I'm speaking to the founder of a peanut butter company whose product has been labelled as the tastiest on the planet. Whether you're a peanut butter lover or not, its addictive nature and versatile texture has put it right up there in the league of all-time favourite spreads. The inquisitive ones among you, I'm sure, will have been wondering where the peanuts come from and how it's made. In this episode, we explore how premium peanuts are sourced from Argentina. Yeah, why don't we start? Maybe you could just give a, an introduction to yourself and uh, Manny Life. Cool. Um, I'm Stu. Uh, I am a son, a brother, a dad, a husband, and I founded a peanut butter brand called Manny Life uh, out of a rugby club kitchen. I think, like, yeah, it was like 2015, 2016. You were, you were there, Sam. You were, you were there in the early days. And we basically, through applying the kind of same principles that are commonplace in things like coffee and chocolate, things like um, single estate sourcing, small batch production, like meticulous roasting, we create what many believe is the best tasting peanut butter in the world. And we just won a couple of awards which support that, which I can't talk about, but it's mega exciting. <laughs> awesome. Um, and I can vouch for the taste. I, I wasn't actually a peanut butter lover before yeah. I tasted Manny Life, and I'm not just saying that. <laughs> exactly. I um, but why, why, why peanut butter in, in particular? Uh, you, was it just, uh, did you just have a soft spot for it? I mean, I know, I didn't really like it. It was genuinely, it was genuinely because I met some really good people and they made peanuts. Um, I, I basically moved to Argentina was it 2014 to put off being an accountant and kind of stumbled in coincidentally to working with a peanut butter social enterprise she's so kind of going in soup kitchens teaching kids and parents how to use it um and then that kind of interest gone from there and i went and i went to cordoba met the family that run the kind of peanut estate which we still source from today and just like, love them and then from that met the guy who roasts our peanuts we loved him and it just kind of snowballed I was I was gonna joke, and if um if the family had made honey, I'd have started a honey brand. Yeah, so a lot lot kind of by chance. Um, uh, yeah, and and so I guess uh, on this podcast, you know, where we're going to be discussing peanuts from Argentina, Perfect. your your uh, <laughs> your sweet spot. So I think you're the right man. Um, so why don't we why don't we you've kind of already touched on on the family that you source your peanuts from. But why don't we take it all the way back to Argentina and you can mm-hmm. maybe just explain a bit about where they're sourced from um, mm-hmm. geographically, but also yeah. what, what the landscape's like. Okay, so I, th- so I was recently back there uh, four months ago and actually learned a lot more. So I'm glad we're having this chat now, not before. Um, but basically, peanuts, I think, or I'm told, grow on they grow in four latitudes 
around the world. Um, I don't know anything about the northern latitudes because we, we source from the south, but the latitudes are basically Cordoba uh, and Salta. And if you follow those around the world, you kind of get where peanuts grow elsewhere. So South Africa, I think Botswana, uh, a couple places in Australia. Um, so, and the landscape in Cordoba is like, it's just super, super, super flat. Uh, beautiful, but very flat. Salta, I know less about Salta, but a bit more hilly up there. A lot of organic peanuts get grown up there. And I mean, I guess as a country, like the landscape was interesting, but genuinely I loved it because the people, it was awesome. Um, one of the things which I always remember thinking is like when you go to Argentina, no one asks you what you do for a job. I always thought it was like, it sounds really small, but like, you know when you go out about here, like it's guaranteed it's like third, fourth, fifth question, sometimes even second. I never, ever got asked whether for a job. And it's like, so it's that. So I'm not, that's kind of like a, like a, I guess a signatory of like the kind of, I guess the vibe there, whatever. Um, and another thing that's really cool about Argentina is that the two most consumed things there, which is like mate and barbecue, can't be eaten alone or drunk alone. So there's just this like very much like inclusive community, like interested in the person, not what they do kind of spirit, which I I think have kind of, I guess, subconsciously tried to emulate uh, bringing it back here. Yeah, yeah, that does sound, that does sound refreshing. And so you mentioned... Because Argentina, to me, uh, is mate, which maybe you can explain yeah. a bit what that is. Yeah. You mentioned barbecue. That's, I guess, red red meat. Um, yeah. And then wine. And, and peanuts, uh, they're kind of another staple of the Argentinian culture. Yeah. So, okay. So the Argies, they, they drink a shit load of wine. They eat a shit load of meat. They drink an absurd amount of mate. They don't eat, like, they hardly eat any peanuts. And virtually no peanut butter which is why it's quite funny because when i when i was over there i originally spoke to the family and i was like guys i'm gonna start a peanut butter brand in in argentina and they were like are you mad and i remember we bought a load off them and i went to a little park in a place called plaza tally in buenos aires and i told them that was what i was going to do and i sat or no stood on like the street corner by the park trying to sell Archie's peanut butter and it was just it was horrific. <laughs> um but yeah they don't they don't eat peanuts they've got something called like manta coal which is like a like a peanut confectionery thing but they're i think they're the third largest grower of peanuts in the in the world the number one exporter by a mile and they don't even like feature in consumption and and the kind of people who are growing these peanuts then uh i mean there must be as you mentioned cordoba is a bit of a, a kind of focal point for the peanut mm-hmm. Uh, growing industry but yeah maybe you can explain a bit more about the profile of uh, the family who yeah. you met and, and what what these farmers kind of typically do from a day to yeah day. so so it's quite it's quite funny so I remember when I just started up uh I got I got asked to go I'm not sure how I got asked to go on a like BBC Radio London interview and you could tell immediately that when she started asking the questions she was kind of like guiding me towards this kind of image or narrative of like these poor Argentine farmers with like pitchforks, which is quite classic, right? Because obviously like being being Brits, there's often this thing about like, oh they're like the distant South American land, like poor them. These guys are it's like a proper business. 
the reason we work with them is because they've got great product. I just really like them. We don't, it's not the same. It's not the same kind of like, I guess, narrative or or setup that you have in things like cocoa and coffee, where it's like really small scale farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, like they, the guys we work with, have got like fifty thousand hectares. Wow. Uh, and 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 85% of it is managed by them they they sub they sublet 50, 15% uh, so it's like it's a proper business it's been going I think three generations um but it's proper um in with organic it becomes quite different so organic peanuts because you can't because they're very hard to grow at scale and because um, I can't remember the name of the of the thing is but it's like a kind of it's like a parasite that grows on the plant you can't get rid of those with well, it's very difficult to get rid of that with machinery so that, so it's a lot of like hand hand harvested or hand picked um, mm-hmm. plants so that's a kind of different a different so so you mentioned the fa- the 50,000 hectares so in terms of scale it's almost it's even larger than traditional arable farming in the UK yeah yeah I mean it's huge yeah. like yeah I remember when I, when I went there in March, it was beautiful, but they took me to like one of the farms, so this is cool, and they were like, yeah, this is one thousandth of, or even less, uh, of what we've got. And it's, and it's not like it's like a, like a concentrated mass either, like, there's, you're, you're obviously on the latitude, but then there's many families and, and it's all a bit scattered. Um, what is interesting? Sorry, I'm gonna go on. What, in, what is interesting is that where where these guys have grown peanuts um, traditionally for the last 50, 60, 70 years, because of the changing climate, well, they're starting to move the growing further south because they're starting to see, like, I guess stuff we're all seeing. Um, mm. So a bit worried about that, if I'm honest. So we've heard a bit from Stu about how and why he started Money Life as well as how the reality of peanut farming in Argentina is very different to any preconceptions we may hold. And I think understanding the reality of where our goods come from is one of the most important steps to understanding why food prices are increasing on supermarket shelves, for example. Stu will go on to discuss this a bit more later on in the podcast, and it's definitely something we want to delve into in in each episode where possible uh, as part of back to the source next up he's going to tell us a bit about how the peanut butter is actually made um, and he'll be tracking it from the peanut belt in argentina all the way across the atlantic to the supermarket shelves here in the uk so so the harvesting process with organic uh peanuts is manual the harvesting process with non-organic which is like the bulk of the market uh is is some is somewhat mm-hmm. mechanical. Um, so I should know how many people they employ. I think I think it's like I think it's a, I think it's only a couple of thousand. Um, but I'm not sure whether I'm not sure whether the guys who 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 like execute or run the harvest are all employed. I think I think they like the family they they employ or sub or subcontract like a lot of people in the area like they are the employer um but i don't think it's all like permanent yeah. staff because obviously like if you harvest and you and you're and you're a quarter of a man or woman like 
there's a lot of work being in, in between like February mm-hmm. and May. Uh, and so if, you, if you're just working for one of these growers, then it's so that's the the, the the harvesting season is 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 February to May every year. Yeah, so I've had, so the harvesting season of peanuts is April May, sometimes June, but very okay. rarely. But in in Salta, in Salta, which is the the latitude further north, it's May June okay. July. So so we got the the Cordoba region, which I saw somewhere was referred yeah. to as the peanut belt. Um, great name. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. so we've got Cordoba region and it's predominantly large scale farming, like the family who, who Manulife yeah. source their peanuts from. Um, do, do Manulife source kind of conventional peanuts as well as organic or do you just do um, one or the other? Um, so we source, we source like this is obviously it's cliche, we source the highest grade of peanut that you can mm-hmm. possibly buy so it's like cordoba is up there uh you, you then they're then categorized into sizes uh and we we buy like i guess the most premium size called 3842s you then also categorize into holes and splits holes are more are more um like considered more premium or, or better quality so we buy holes uh, and then they're also blanched um so that's the kind of quality side and then we also buy a type called hyaleic which has become very popular in the last few years but it's essentially it's a peanut that has like a more uh like a healthier fat profile um so they become quite trendy in there and they taste taste better last longer etc um so that's our like standard um supply and it was quite funny because when i first met uh this family and i told them what i was going to do and i asked them I asked them that I wanted to source the best they possibly grew. And they kind of laughed and they said, like, so you're making peanut butter. Why don't you just buy, like, these splits like everyone else? I said, no. And then, obviously, like, since then, they've kind of seen how we're doing. And now I think that they're, I think they now try and sell better peanuts to all the peanut butter producers. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's similar, it's similar to coffee, right? Like, you've got, you've got origins, you've got grades, and you've got, like, subgrades. And so maybe give us a bit of a, a flavour of, of what happens once it leaves, once the peanuts leave the farm um, and, you know, start making their way over here to, to the UK. So, okay, I was just, I was just there recently, so I'm, I'm going to kind of take you to the process. So um, taken out of the ground, they're then left to lie on the, on the ground for between like 10 and 12 days where they're, where they're dried out. They're then taken to like a central, a central kind of processing site, which is owned by the family. So it's just quite distinct because in other countries, the processing and the growing is kind of separate. So taken there, they're cleaned and they're, I'll send you a picture actually. They're stored in these like absolutely enormous silos. Like it's like nothing you've ever seen. Like there's like literally mountains of peanuts. I'll send you a picture. Uh, stored there for, for I think like, few days few weeks they're then put into processing so like clean deshelled blanched such other put in these big 12 50 kilo tote bags we then we contract from the family um we used to be we used to call ddp so they were basically they have shippers and they pretty basic right? they just put they put the 12 50 kilo tote bags in full containers and they ship them across the atlantic over the equator lands in London gateway and go to our roastery 
they're roasted. They go to our blending site, the blenders put in a jar, and it sounds a lot more simple than it is, but they are. Um, yeah, no, I, I can imagine it's 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 very much not not that simple. Um, but yeah. so you said they 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 get shipped over and they land at London Gateway and then go Gateway, to your roastery. Yeah. Which was an absolute nightmare during, obviously during COVID and still a little bit, because there was just, there was just ships backed up everywhere. And that was one of the, you, you asked about challenges, that was the big one. And the, the roastery, tell me a bit about how, how that works. So again, someone I met very early on, like just absolutely love them. Uh, both the guy that runs it and all his team. Um, it's, so we're, we use, conveyor ovens um so similar to like it's similar to lots of kind of uh scaled up roasting um roasting but it's continuous process uh peanuts go in one end that the big thing is like they have to be they have to be leveled out uh, and goes through at temperatures i can't talk to you about at times i can't talk to you about uh and then comes at the end and one of the things which a lot of guys do which we start doing is um you like you kill the roast so, you, so whereas previously the nuts would kind of come out of the oven and they would keep cooking under that room temperature we've now got like a it's not a kill step but it's like they come out they're cooled immediately and they start so it enables you to be a bit more accurate um and yeah that's kind of it like the, the roast the roasting is is one of the key similar to coffee is like the key process that either unveils mass or like accentuates the flavor of the peanut, um, which obviously you see in the, the deep roast, which is something we kind of invented a while back. And presumably, or maybe you did, you had this relationship with the roaster from day one, but you mentioned there's a, a bit of a secret secret recipe for Vanilla, <laughs> which I'm sure is under, yeah. under lock and key, but yeah. how did you get to that point where you were happy with the recipe? We're never really happy, is the truth. Like, we're kind of constantly going back and forth, uh, like, refining, tightening the parameters. Um, at the beginning, it was kind of... And it's still quite artisan, but at the beginning, it was very artisan, and we, and we just, like... We didn't really have that many quality checks, but I guess me trying it. Uh, and kind of experimenting. Whereas now, we have, like, very specific parameters that we measure five or six times off the line every day. Uh, and it's like a feedback loop, right? So if ever we taste a bottle we're not happy with, we track it back to the batch, we have a discussion, and we see whether there's anything we can do that can improve that longer term. Um, it's very easy when you're doing that kind of stuff to like get lost in like the back and forth and, and almost like because a lot of this stuff is kind of random, right? So, so the way to improve it is isn't to like dive into the random. It's to it's to change the process so that the random kind of problems mm -hmm. don't happen. Um, so yeah, the answer is never happy. So. <laughs> Good. So we can still expect the flavour to uh, to get better and better. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the blending. Explain to me a bit about how yeah. that works. So there's like two. There's basically two. Well, it's maybe more this, but there's two. There's two main ways to make um, to make peanut butter from peanuts. Um, all mainstream brands that I'm aware of uh, do something called milling, 
And what that is is peanuts passing through like two blades, not not two blades, two like plates that uh, spin and vibrate over each other very very fast, um, and the, the peanuts kind of pass through them, and they're just like completely macerated and obliterated, and then and then out of that comes like a quite fine paste, and and the degree to which its final course is determined by how big the gap is between the two plates. So that's one way. It's great. Um, Great for scale, super cheap, uh, and I kind of wish main life could be made like that because it'd solve a lot of issues for us. Um, the other way is how we do it, which is batch blending, and that is if you picture like a kitchen blender, but just like I mean, not not that much bigger to be honest, but like bigger than a kitchen blender. And how that works is small batch, fast cycles, where the 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 texture is basically um, determined by time under blades, sharpness of blades, temperature reached. And through that process, which is a lot less efficient, a lot more expensive, we're able to create uh, a texture that can't be, currently mm. can't be matched um, by the inline milling method. Yeah, yeah, because that's definitely something as a as a money knife consumer that is, is, is noticeable. It's kind of the, the crunchiness. Yeah. But also the the smoothness at the same time. I don't know if you exactly. don't know if you pick me to be a brand ambassador. <laughs> um, Perfect. Okay, so I mean, there's a lot of variables basically, and uh, getting it from yeah. Cordoba to uh, the, the blender, the, kind of the batch blender in in London, requires multiple different steps, yeah. and and from there it's, yeah. it's it's jarred and sent all over the UK. Sent all over the world. All over the world. Yeah. Where else? Yeah, UK, UK, and Germany, and occasionally it's like my cousins buy in Canada. Um, <laughs> but it, it's interesting what you say there, right? Because it's like there's a lot of variables, and whereas with loads of products, like you can control for those variables. With us, we're like constantly exploring them, but but it's pretty. You like you can't control for like variations in moisture content out um, going into the roastery. You can, you can like dial up your your how you roast but like because it's such a natural product there's a lot of stuff that you just kind of you're like presented with and one of the things we're working right now is like measuring the certain metrics parameters and then determining how that changes um our process to, to try and get as similar product every time as possible so maybe now's a, a good time to to discuss um kind of a specialty peanut butter movement if it, if it is a movement yeah maybe you can start by explaining what specialty peanut butter is when we started manny life peanut butter was very much like a commodity it was smooth and crunchy occasionally with no palm oil and that was kind of it and no one really spoke about provenance no one really spoke about roast no one really spoke about uh, process and it didn't really appear to be very considered but when I met the family in Argentina it was like immediately very obvious to me that peanut butter was much more similar to um, that coffee um, so we in like 2015 2016 we became the first brand I think in the world to start talking about like provenance so like where the nuts come from to start telling stories of the of the people that grow them like which is a very complex coffee 
we were we were definitely the first brand in the world uh, to create what we called uh, deep roast peanut butter, which was it's quite funny. So we basically burnt the nuts and then realised it was delicious. So it wasn't good enough for deep roast, and then and then obviously refined it, refined it, refined it. And now what's interesting is like every brand in the UK and many many brands in other countries of the world have their version of the deep roast, which is quite cool because like a bunch of friends basically changed peanut butter from a rubber cup kitchen by accident. Um, so, so specialty peanut butter for us is like, is basically emulating all of those kind of cues and comms cues and taste cues that you see in coffee and chocolate. So the communication part, but then there's also the quality of the product part. And I think that all has grown off the back of us. Like the quality of products in the UK in particular has, has improved off the back of my life coming in and people kind of stepping up. I remember when we, and it was like 20, early 2017, so we were still in the kitchen and the head of technical at, at the biggest peanut butter brand in the country uh, came to our stand. Probably shouldn't have told us this, but she basically said that all their MPD is benchmarked against Manny Life. And we were, I think we were turning over like five grand a month. <laughs> Which is quite cool. So, so my like vision for specialty, for, I guess, specialty peanut butter is like like coffee R framework in peanut butter. So, in in five years, we'll have like four or five different roast levels. You'll have like three or four different origins. The majority will probably just buy smooth and crunchy and, and bike and stuff. But there'll be this whole like there'll be this whole like considered level that you see in coffee and chocolate. Uh, and we're hoping to kind of spearhead that. Amazing. And and I guess what also comes with specialty peanut butter and, and other specialty products is the price point, right? And yeah. so Money Life is, is, is a lot more expensive than other peanut butter mm. brands. And I guess yeah. one, one comparison that springs to mind is uh, Tony's Chocoloni. You know, their, their chocolate bars are... Are a lot more expensive as well. Um, yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit about how how you get to that price point. Obviously, the the batch blending is expensive. The provenance mm. is expensive. The quality is expensive. What what else kind of goes into that? Um, I mean, mate, you kind of got it. In that like, the big thing. So, like, we we buy the best peanut you can buy. So that's so that's already between. 15 and 5% more expensive than what our competitors are buying. Um, roasting, because of, because of our like um, kind of meticulousness or not meticulous, like tight, tight standards, uh, a lot of the peanuts that get roasted need to go off to other, other places because we can't accept them. They don't, they don't get wasted, they just go to like less, less, um, I don't know if you the word meticulous, it's less meticulous. Um, purchases of roasted material the big one and like the, the huge cost increase but also i think the, the biggest kind of drive of quality or just or distinction is the blending so like if i'm let's say let's say brand up pepper nut so i'm pepper nut and i want to make 100 tons of peanut butter they could probably make that in maybe two two days 50 tons in one end, 50 tons out the other, and it's just done because their because their process is in line, uh, like the same amount of labor is applied to it, similar amount of energy, and so the cost per unit of that 100 tons is like pretty low. For us to make 100 tons of peanut butter, we have to run 
let's go back to 50 kilos. I'm not, not going to do the math here, but 50 kilos. So what's that? That's, tw that's 20 batches to do, to do a ton times 100. We got two, 2,000 batches, which obviously takes a lot more than a lot more labor than if that's the right math. That <laughs> class. I'll double check uh, that later. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot more labor, a lot more time. Um, and that's where the cost is, right? Yeah. Um, okay, interesting. I, I wish it was just I wish it, I wish it was just marketing, where and we just made an absolute fortune because we could like tell a story, but it's it's genuinely a lot more expensive to make. But it does make for more interesting stories and more interesting marketing too. So there we have it, a blow by blow account of how the finest peanut butter around is made, all the way from farm to fork. Up next and uh, the final part of the podcast, Stu is going to tell us a bit about the main challenges facing peanut farmers in Argentina today and how these uh, compare to the potential challenges facing many life uh, and, and their supply chain partners in general. Yeah, there are three challenges for the, for the growers. So some of them are permanent and some of them are more, are more kind of short term. So one, which is I think a permanent one, unfortunately, is climate. So I think I said earlier, I definitely said off, offline that for the first time in like 30, 40 years, even potentially ever, um, there was a frost uh, in Cordoba, Argentina in April, which is like peanut growers' nightmare. Because when, when you take the peanuts out of the ground um, and you lay them there to dry, like if it rains, it's fine. But if there's a frost, it like crystallizes the sugars of the peanut and makes them, and makes it taste really bad. So that, that reduces the yield a lot. So like as that happens more and more, the yield on the crops going to go down and down. And, and how these guys are trying to deal with that is that they're buying up land and starting to grow at different latitudes, which is, which is mad because the peanut belt is basically having its trousers pulled down. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're, we're now sagging with the peanut belt. <laughs> um, so that's number one. Number two, and I think this is, this is the same everywhere as well, like land rent costs are just are going up. Mm. Um, and obviously that means that either the pies of peanuts needs to go up, which, which it probably should do. Like I think most food has been subsidized or especially in the US country, like, the food in the UK has been too cheap for too long, um, which sounds which sounds strange, but it, I think I think that's true. Um, so either the price of peanuts is going to go up, or if they struggle to do that because I don't know geopolitical stuff, um, they're just going to have to grow other crops. Uh, I'm not sure where peanuts sit on like the profitability scale of of a crop. Um, I know that they're part of like a rotation. So they go with soy, wheat, maize, and peanuts. And um, so there's that. And then the third one is like input costs. So, and we've seen this this year actually. So, input costs and input shortages. So there was a there was a massive shortage of diesel in Cordoba around the time of harvest, which meant that, like the length of time it took from peanuts coming out of the ground to peanuts going to the silos to get dried was like significantly longer than what it is usually. Which if the climate is fine, that's no problem. But if you're worried about frost coming in, it's like it's chaos. Um, so those are the three big ones here, so yeah, input costs, climate and land costs. 
Yeah, that, I mean that sounds that sounds pretty pretty treacherous for for those those producers. Yeah, it's it's something that you see in all, all of these supply chains. This kind of inequality between yeah. the consumers and the, and the producers. Um, yeah, and one way of addressing that is through the specialty market. Yeah, it's by yeah kind of you know offering a service that means the price increases, and then that that should kind of knock on down mm. down the supply chain. Um, mm. But yeah, why don't you tell me some of the challenges that are facing Manny Life as well? For us, again, so because the input cost of our supplies going up, so our input costs go up, so there's only so many pounds you can charge for a drop peanut butter, so that's one thing. Um, <laughs> is there? Manny Life has Has it gone over the four pound mark yet? <laughs> Yeah, obviously, we started at like six, and and there'll be there'll be like similar, especially right. There'll be products we launch which are, which I know have like a, a thousand jar, ten thousand jar limited edition, which we could, which I think people would be much more interested yeah. in paying a lot more for. Uh, that's quite exciting, but um, so input costs going up. I think like everyone, like every basically business with a supply chain, it's just like supply chain kind of robustness, like. We've all kind of been living in this like just in time, peaceful world model. And I just think that's not going to be the reality for quite a while. So we're, so we've actually been working, been introduced by the, by our suppliers in Argentina to new families in other parts of the world. So we've, we've, we're working with them or starting to work with uh, great guys in Brazil and Tupa, uh, and we're kind of we haven't started using their products in any of our, our products yet, but we're, but we're developing we're developing products so that we can start using them in tandem. Um, so mm-hmm. there's like supply chain robustness. There's obviously cost, and then like everyone else, it's like we're entering an era of I don't know, cost of living crisis, um, and it's like where do you where does your product sit in the pecking order of like affordable luxury, uh, necessity, um, like weekend treat, um, and that, and it's almost quite hard to control where you sit in that spectrum. But as best as we can, we we would like people to consider us as one of those three things, as opposed to I'll get it in five years' time when I'm when I've got money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I see. I see lots of lots of things to consider. And mm-hmm. where where's next for Money Life? You're going to be sourcing from new regions. I know you're mm-hmm. you, you're in, you're constantly um, bringing out new new products like the cocoa flavor, mm-hmm. where you're sourcing your cocoa from. Where is it, Tanzania? Um, yeah. What's next in terms of your your product, your sourcing, and your your peanuts? Um, so it's funny we spoke about. 10,000 jar limited editions with like interesting stories, interesting products. So, so I'm very keen to start doing that. So again, like adopting the same stuff that you see in like proper craft categories like whiskey or coffee or chocolate. Uh, so like small run, super special, uh, unique products. So that's a big part which we're hoping to start exploring soon. Um, we've got a very, I don't know, you're, you're the first podcast I've told about this. Oh, exclusive. Uh, we've got a very, yeah. We've got a very exciting supply chain uh, change happening now uh, that will hit the market in end of September. So we are, I mean, 
save complete disaster. So maybe let's wait a bit before we publish this. Uh, but uh, we're launching into like the most banging uh, glass jar like I've ever seen. It's yeah, and that I think that I think people are going to really, really, really appreciate that. Um, not just because it's glass, and obviously everyone no one likes plastic, but because it's like how you stir it, how you can spoon peanut butter out of it. it like it's all been designed to like make the 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 peanut butter experience better than than anything else. So that's what exciting. And then this is products, jar, and then new markets, new distributions. So we've got, we sell lots of places, but not not many. So a lot of people just can't access Money Knife, which is a shame. Uh, and we've got some quite exciting stuff happening in Europe. Um, but a big thing kind of to there on top of that is, is I want to start spending more time at our, like at our origins, so we can start telling their stories in a way that I've always wanted to tell them. We just haven't really had the headspace at the time. And now that I've got a really great team working, probably find me quite annoying to work with, to be honest. I can I need to like get out of the way and go do well, yeah. stuff outside the country. If you ever need uh, need someone to accompany you on, on those trips, we can do now it. You have the camera, back to the source live from uh yeah, from exactly. <laughs> um Stoops, thanks, thanks so much for, for coming on. Uh, it's been great to chat. So that's it for this episode of Back to the Source. Thanks very much for listening. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or guest recommendations, you can email me at backtothesourcepod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode was produced by me, Sam Stewart, with the soundtrack composed by Henry Middleditch and podcast artwork done by Storm at Hill. Thanks a lot and see you next time.